Good morning. We're glad that you're here to worship with us at Rivermont today. I, uh, as you can tell from my voice, I received an extra Christmas gift of a cold this year. And so if you'll forgive me for my weak voice and if it cracks from time to time, uh, let's look together at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 this morning as we see the Lord Jesus coming into this world and he sets the world on notice. It's on notice for what? That there is a new power in the world. And that power that has come into the world might appear weak in light of what we consider strong in our own lives. And yet what the world considers strong is truly desperately weak. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would open our eyes and open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. Indeed, Christmas is about the birth of a baby. And that birthing process happens thousands of times a day all around the world. And throughout the history of the world, thousands of these babies have been born to be a king. They're born into privilege. They're often born into protection. They're nursed. They're nurtured. They're placed into comfortable surroundings. They're born to be a king, to rule and reign when they're old enough to command. But one baby, this baby, the Lord Jesus, is unlike any other ever birthed because he already was king. He already did rule over the universe before he came. He already was attended by thousands and thousands of angels, the heavenly hosts. He already was comfortable in heaven. He wasn't born to be king. He already was king. And then he was born. Yet it wasn't to privilege, to protection and comfort that this king was born. But he left his throne above to take on flesh here among us in the place of sin and brokenness death and injustice and squalor. He left the throne and was birthed in a manger, a feeding trough for animals and surrounded by straw and dirt and filth. That's the Christmas story. And as the king came that evening, he came to upend the world, as Ron said a moment ago. What is it that he came to do that we can look about? What has he come to truly turn upside down in our world? Well, we see in verses 1 to 3 that he did come to turn the world upside down. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Who was this Caesar Augustus? Well, this was Octavian. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, whom adopted him and named Octavian as his successor when he was 19 years old. Octavian, we could say, was full of himself. So much so that he was the first Caesar to suggest that he was not only a man, but he was God. 
He wanted devotion, absolute devotion. And in order to prove his power, he wanted a census. Now, a census was a a demonstration of his power. It was a way for an emperor to assert control over his sprawling empire, a way to count the noses and see how grand is his kingdom. And it was also a means to tighten his grip on his kingdom for aggressive taxation. And yet all that way, all that while of seizure trying to seize more power that through the census, it was the very means that God used to send Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, the place where the scriptures had said he would be born. It was to the city of David. It was mentioned three times in our text, twice in verse four and again in verse 11. The Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah had to come from the line of David. And Micah chapter 5 said that he had to be born in Bethlehem. This Bethlehem. There were two of them, but this particular one was the smaller of the two. And yet, as Caesar wanted to show off all of his authority and all of his power, he was unwittingly used by God for his purposes to get Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem to be born exactly where the scriptures have said he would be born. The king of the world was to be born exactly where he was promised, exactly how he was promised to do what he promised, and that is to save us, his people, from their sins. There was one who thought he was king, Caesar, thought he was the ruler of the world, and yet he was a man under authority. And Luke wants us to see how our God upends this world, upends the work of the unjust, even while establishing and his work of arranging history to save his people. Sometimes the Lord pulls back the curtain and allows us to see how he's arranging the details of of world events. He allows us to see how choices and decisions bring his plan about even the ego of Caesar bringing about the Lord's plan. We need to remember these moments when the curtain is closed to us, when we're unable to see what God is doing. And those times we can remember what he has done to help us know that God is at work, even when we can't see him at work. Sometimes things happen and they leave us feeling at the whim of circumstances, difficult and tragic and tireless and senseless the circumstances of our life might seem. Perhaps Mary and Joseph felt that way that night. Here they were demanded to go and register while Mary was pregnant, while she was nine months pregnant. And she had to travel 80 miles through the dirt and the dust and the grime to get from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. That wasn't an easy journey for a woman who's nine months pregnant to make. I'm sure they wondered, how is God reigning through this? How could this possibly be God's plan? You might be in exactly that place this morning, wondering what in the world is God doing in your life? You might feel like you are in the wrong place or worse. Whatever you do seems to turn up for naught. Nothing is working and nothing is working out. Friends, whatever is going on in your life, hear this. From the major events of history down to the smallest details of our lives, God's purposes for his people cannot be thwarted. He has come into this world to upend the destructive power of evil and the evil one. And in place, he's bringing his redemptive and restoring reign of peace. That's one of the reasons that the Bible repeats the command so many times. Do not fear. Down to the little details of our lives. Do not fear. Why? Because our God reigns. 
And he has come to frustrate and turn upside down the work of the evil one in this world and also in your life. Sometimes his power is veiled in weakness. Like a baby born to a teenage mother. And the machinations of trying to get her to the right spot so that the Savior is born where the Scriptures prophesy He would be born. Sometimes His power and His protection show up as powerful. Sometimes His power shows up in ways we wouldn't recognize as powerful. And yet all the while, His plan is to bless you, His people, not to harm you. He plans to give you a future and give you a hope. So do not fear. Trust in His power that is at work even when His means seem convoluted to us. Second thing we see in this text is the king came to set right the world. He came not only to turn it upside down, but he came to set it right. We've heard this story dozens and dozens and dozens of times. But what would you expect out of the birth of a king? A rival to Caesar's throne and even more so. The everlasting throne of God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. What would you expect his birth to be like? Princes were born to great fanfare, great celebrations and visitations of dignitaries and and fine cloth and gifts and servants all around. But what greeted this king on his arrival? He was placed in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. Everything about his birth highlights obscurity and humility and apparent weakness and trial and pain. But friends, that's exactly where God is at work in this world. In the unexpected places. Look again at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now Luke doesn't give us a lot of details, but what does he say? He said that Mary and Joseph came to the inn and there wasn't any room. Now, there are at least two words that are translated in in the New Testament, and this is not the word for a commercial in. So don't get the idea of them coming to the hotel and the no vacancy sign is flashing. That's not what was happening. But instead, this word for in is the one that's used for a guest room that's attached to a home. They came, think to, uh, they came to the city of David where Joseph had generational family relationships and all of their family's guest rooms were already taken. There was no more room because the census was happening. The families had all descended upon this little town and there was no room for Joseph and Mary with his family. Well, where were they sent? Well, they were sent to the place where animals are kept. Justin Martyr wrote in 150 AD that his birthplace was in fact in a cave. It was very common in Jesus' day for homes to be built on a cave hewn from the side of a hill and the animals would be sheltered in the cave. It was There was no room in the house, so Mary and Joseph were sent down, literally down into the cave part of the house where the animals were stabled. Maybe some of you here visiting for Christmas feel like you've been sent down into the cave, into the basements of your family homes. Are you getting the picture here? Mary and Joseph traveling for miles and miles, dusty and dirty, with Mary nine months pregnant, arriving to the family home and being sent into a cave to be with the animals. Certainly not the Christmas card moment, but the holy family all in perfect peace and harmony and even the animals in peace in the background and the the cows lowing and everybody's nice and peaceful. 
But instead what we have is a teenage girl. Remember, she is likely 13 or 14 years old at this point. In a cold, damp cave with the dirty animals. Sitting down, perhaps with her back against the hard rock wall preparing to give birth. No anesthesia. No mother there to hold her hand and console her. It was tradition in those days that men were not allowed to be with their wife while she gave birth because the blood would make them ceremonially unclean. We don't know for sure, but it is probable that Mary was all alone in that cave that night. A scared teenage girl sitting in the dirt giving birth to the Son of God, the King of Kings. Can you imagine What kind of a love would drive our God to do something like this? A love that would mean the creator of the universe would take on flesh and be born in vulnerability, be birthed into squalor in this way without any fanfare. Jesus didn't enter into a silent night in a peaceful world. If the world had been silent and peaceful, he wouldn't have needed to come. But instead, it was a world in distress. It was a world that was broken. It was a world at war. Have you ever given thought to the next bit of the passage in Luke 2 and wondered what it looked like that night with all of those angels around? One angel appeared to the shepherds and told them, Do not be afraid. And they sent, him, sent them to see the baby Jesus. It would be interesting to see one angel, but what would it have looked like For a multitude, in verse 13 of our passage, a multitude, thousands of angels of heavenly hosts in that field that night. Struggle to imagine what it would have looked like. A field filled with angels, each one of them majestic enough to bring a deep fear upon us. But here there were hundreds of them, maybe even thousands of them. That field lit up with angels that night. This isn't the only place that the heavenly hosts appear in the scriptures. We see them in 1 Kings 22, in Nehemiah 9, in Daniel 7, and in Revelation, especially chapter 12. Have you ever wondered what those angels were doing? Why were there thousands of them on that farm that night? We're used to seeing and hearing about them with the glory of the Lord in the throne room and and surrounded by light, that Shekinah glory that we read about in in the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord in the temple. But now we're seeing that glory on a farm. What were they doing? They were there to praise. That's what they always do. The hosts of God praise in the presence of God. And think about this. Once more, God has pulled back the curtain of our limited eyesight and has enabled us to see what is truly going on. God had taken on flesh, born as a baby, and we have the scene of the throne room. The very presence of God was now taking residence in this vulnerable little child. They gathered in the field that night as an earthly outpost of the throne room of heaven. They were there praising God because that's where God was. He was out in that field, in that farm. He was in Bethlehem that night. God had come to dwell with us and to reign with us. But they were there to do more than praise, I believe. And they were there also to protect. For the out the scriptures, the heavenly hosts not only praise, but they are referred to as the army of heaven. 
It is the heavenly host that battles against the devil, battles against Satan, the one who accuses God's people, who fights, who persecutes, who seeks to harm you and me. We see this heavenly host, the army of God, in Revelation chapter 12, where John paints for us a vision that we see lived out in Luke chapter 2. seems as though God is once again peeling back the curtain and enabling us to see things as they truly are from his point of view. Revelation chapter 12 points to several characters. The, the dragon, which John calls is, is, is Satan, that's the devil. And there's a woman about to give birth, which on a grand scale is speaking of God's people who give birth to the Messiah through whom the Savior would come. But more narrowly, that woman refers to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And there's a child born in verse 5 of Revelation 12 to rule the nations. And that child is Jesus. John tells us in Revelation 12 that the devil is there seeking to snatch the baby as he's born. As verse 4 says, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. The vision of Revelation 12 opens our eyes to this war in heaven with the angels, the hosts of heaven led by Michael to battle the dragon and battle his angels. John's vision here is from God's view what was happening on that night. With this vision of John in our minds, let's return to the scene in Luke 2. We had Mary in a vulnerable place, a dingy cave, afraid and giving birth to the king. We aren't allowed to see the dragon, the devil prowling around, seeking to snatch this baby as he's born. But we are enabled to see the hosts. That army of heaven, there in the field, ready to protect, ready to fight as the outpost of the kingdom of God come to earth that night. Why were the angels in the field? Because the king had come. The one who commands the armies had come. And that day the world changed forever. God brought the fight to the devil that day. That day was the beginning of the end for the devil and his reign of evil in this world. It was all coming crashing down because the throne room of heaven had descended to earth. Although the devil keeps fighting and harassing you and me as God's people, his doom is sure because the king has come. I wonder where you feel opposed and oppressed in your walk with Christ, in your life of faith today. Where do you hear the voice of the accuser of the devil reminding you of all the sins that you've done against the Lord? Know that the one who opposes you, the one who accuses you, the one who seeks to distract you from the gospel of Jesus, he has been defeated. The one who is seeking to destroy you doesn't want you to know that he has been cast down. He has been defeated. Friends, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year we sing. And for many of us, it's the most stressful time. For many of us, it's the hardest time of the year. For we remember the family members we've lost. We remember perhaps hard things that have happened in the year. Perhaps some of the cracks in your closest relationships become gaping holes during the Christmas season. If that's you today. Rest in what Christmas proclaims. One day... Those wounds will be fully and finally healed. Because one day, all will be made right. Because the devil has been defeated. Evil has been turned over. 
and it, tri- it triumphs no more. But we know that the battle wasn't won in the manger. Yes, the king took up residence that night in that manger, but the battle had only begun. The battle for our very lives would take him from the manger to the cross where Jesus gave his life for ours. It was on that cross that Jesus cried, It is finished. The penalty is paid. The victory is won that we might have eternal life. Do not fear because the devil is defeated and our sin has been canceled. In those days, in the winter, the shepherds didn't usually watch their their sheep by night, except for one field. The shepherds who tended the sheep for the temple, for the sacrifices, they stayed in their fields to watch over their sheep all year long. Rain or shine, warmth or cold, day and night, they stood watch over the little lambs that would take away the sin of God's people. Tradition says it was to these shepherds, the ones watching over the field of sheep for the sacrifice in the temple. It was to these shepherds that the angelic host appeared that night. They left their field of lambs to go and bow their knee at the throne of the true lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, including your sin and my sin. That night, As the Son of God was born and laid in a manger, a war on evil was declared. And yet from its first moments, the terms of peace were announced. Peace would cost this child his life. Peace in favor with God, eternal life for us, would come because Jesus took our sin upon himself. The terms of peace were announced and they included the giving of the life of his own son in exchange for ours. Glory to God in the highest, the angels sang. The king was born to die, that we might have peace forevermore. Indeed, glory to God in the highest. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. We are thankful that you haven't left us to figure it out on our own. But you have revealed yourself in the scriptures. You have pulled back the curtain and enabled us to see what you have done to give us the gift of eternal life. We thank you, Father, that you sent your Son. We thank you that your Son is the one upon whom our sin was laid, that we might have life eternal. We thank you that he is the Lamb of God, that the accuser's voice might be silenced. Lord, we know that he accuses us day and night before your throne. We, we read that in the scriptures. And yet we also know that you already know all of the accusations that can be levied against us. You know them all and you love us anyway. And so we thank you for giving us a picture, a vision, an enablement to see the truth that you have made the way for us to live with you eternally. Help us to lay hold of it and embrace it and live in confidence this year, knowing that the Lamb of God who takes away our sin has come. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.